This is Seth for Privacy, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today we have episode 275 for June 6th, 2022. And I've got a great interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Seth uh, from Seth for Privacy about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and <laughs> all sorts of things that I've been wanting to talk about in the show for a long time. And I, there's nobody better to talk to about that than Seth. The guy really knows his stuff and we're going to get deep into it today, but also try to explain it in a way that anybody can grok. So before we get into that one quick security note, there's been a, a nasty Windows vulnerability discovered that there is no patch for yet. Basically, the, the, the shorter answer is, is be really careful opening Word documents that maybe from uh, a suspect source until this gets fixed. Keep your eyes open for a, a, an emergency patch, probably from Microsoft sometime soon. There is a link in the show notes if you want to follow that to a, a mitigation you can use. Basically, they recommend disabling the MSTDT URL protocol. And if that means nothing to you, then, like probably it does to most people, then I would just be extra careful until this patch comes out. But uh, if you really want to try to take measures into your own hands to try to protect yourself from this, you can check out that article I've linked to in the show notes. So today we're going to talk with uh, Seth about cryptocurrency. And this guy, as I said, really knows his stuff. We're going to talk about what it is and how it works and not just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency in general. Uh, of course, we have to talk about blockchain and what that means, how that works. I'll ask him some questions that... <laughs> that I think you all probably have, like how on earth does cryptocurrency get any value at all? You know, from where does it derive its value? We'll talk about why, whether cryptocurrency mining is really bad for the environment. And honestly, I learned some really interesting things about that in our interview today. We'll talk about whether cryptocurrency is really anonymous. This is something that has been debated. And when I talked to Nick Weaver about this many years ago, and I asked that question, he actually laughed in my face. <laughs> so... So that'll give you some idea as to the answer of that question, at least in terms of Bitcoin. And we'll even talk about, you know, after you've heard all this, if you want to buy some cryptocurrency and, and use it, how you might go about doing that. So this will be your primer on cryptocurrency. If you don't know anything about it, we're going to talk all about it today. And hopefully when you come away from this, you'll at least have some basic understanding uh, of what this stuff's all about, because it is all over the news. But one thing we don't talk about and one myth that I want to bust right up front and maybe this is just kind of minor, but it, it, it always irks me that whenever you see a story about Bitcoin, it's always accompanied by a picture of a coin. Sometimes actually somebody holding a coin with a big B on it. And there, there is no physical Bitcoin. Somebody made up that drawing. Uh, and I don't know who, who gets credit for that. But now all the coins have it. That someone has come up with a, a physical representation of a virtual thing. I guess because we're humans and we like to see physical objects and we think of coins and, you know, why not a big shiny gold coin with a B on it? Why wouldn't that be a Bitcoin? But there is no such thing, or at least if there is, it's a novelty item. It's not a real thing. There, There is no physical coin. Now, what is not a myth is my dragon challenge coin. Now, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's actually a physical coin. It's something you can hold in your hand. You can spin on a table, actually. It's much more rare and arguably more valuable than many other virtual currencies. 
Uh, of course, I might be a little bit biased in that regard. Anyway, I'll talk a little bit more about that after the interview. All right, real quick, before we start, because it's a long interview and I want to get going, uh, he throws out a, a few terms, a couple computer terms that I want to make sure we define real quick. And we've talked about these before, and you probably are vaguely familiar with a couple of these. Um, but he talks about a CPU and a GPU. So central processing unit, that's CPU, and a graphics processing unit, that's GPU. And so the the old school brain of a computer, the, the main part of, of, a, of a computer that does all the quote-unquote thinking, is the central processing unit. Uh, but over the years, as we've got into gaming and things that require a lot of heavy-duty graphics, visuals, we have offloaded some very specific processing to a specialized computer or brain called a GPU, or a graphics processing unit. And it turns out that crypto mining leans heavily on graphics processors. But it's gotten to the point now where it's even kind of gotten beyond that, and, it, and now it uses what we call ASICs, and that is A-S-I-C, which has nothing to do with shoes. An ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit. And that term has been around for a very long time, but it's basically a computer chip that is designed for a very specific purpose. And, and so it turned out even GPUs aren't, aren't optimal enough for crypto mining that they actually have to create special computer chips just for mining. And so that's what we mean when we say ASIC. All right, so with that as intro, let's get right into our interview with Seth. All right, Seth is a privacy educator, a Monero contributor, and host of the Opt Out podcast. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to to walk through a lot of, I think, interesting topics here and, and some that maybe aren't normal in the, the cybersecurity and, and privacy circles or aren't touched on as in-depth. So looking forward to chat with that and I'm just thankful for the, the opportunity to come on, Gary. Before we start, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and your podcast and how you got into uh, doing what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, originally InfoSec engineer, cybersecurity is my focus. Um, I've kind of shifted into privacy education more broadly, and that really started with Monero as a cryptocurrency and getting involved in kind of the the things that cryptocurrency can can do for freedom and the tools that they can be. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that later today. But what started out as just kind of caring about the the speculation and making money on Monero kind of led to a passion for personal privacy and ultimately led to me creating the opt-out podcast, which is where I just kind of focus on helping people on their privacy journey, helping them see why privacy matters and, and learn the tools and techniques they need to um, to take back control of their data and, and take back control of their their personal privacy. So that's really my focus. Um, talk about privacy a lot on my blog, on Twitter, and, and through the podcast itself, uh, but doing what I can to to kind of help others who who follow along to, to benefit from the things that I'm learning as I walk down my own my own privacy journey. Well, glad to have you and I've uh, been following you for a little while now. You did some great stuff. I really like your podcast. I've been wanting to talk about Bitcoin on the show for a long time. It's something that's been on the news a lot. And I, I think that most people have no real understanding of what the hell it is. So I'm really glad to have you on the show to break this down and kind of get into the, the meat of this. And, and hopefully the audience will walk away with some understanding of what the heck this stuff's all about. So let's get into it. Uh, first, what is Bitcoin and where did it come from? Yeah, so it's that's a very interesting part of the topic and uh, diving into kind of how Bitcoin started is somewhat unique and that it did start off as just a project by someone who is completely anonymous. We still don't know who Satoshi is or any of the people who are kind of behind the creation of it. But ultimately what Bitcoin did is it took existing technologies like blockchain was not a new technology, proof of work was not a new technology. Uh, these things were not new in and of themselves, but he came up with a novel way to combine these existing technologies and build out a decentralized currency, build out something that 
that ultimately could be decentralized, but could still solve the problem of, of double spending of, of cheating with when you're spending funds and pretending to spend them once and then spending them later. And it, it fixed this other common problem called the Byzantine generals problem. And he used these technologies to address these problems that no one else had been able to solve. There had been approaches previously, things like um, hash cash and uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other technologies that came before that just never quite hit the nail on the head of what you needed to combine to build a, a, a currency that could exist outside of the state that could be decentralized, that that everyone could have access to and be able to to get and be able to use freely. Um, so he was able to, to do that in a way no one else had been able to. And and ultimately what it does is it, it uses a blockchain and it uses this this technique called proof of work to make it very difficult to go back in time and edit previous things that happened. And mm-hmm. obviously in this case in Bitcoin, that's transactions. Mm-hmm. Because when you make a transaction, when you pay someone, you need finality. You need to know that they got the money, you no longer have the money, and they can give you the service or good or whatever the thing is you're paying for. And if someone can just go back to this this database, which a blockchain a blockchain is ultimately just a very inefficient database mm. for, for good reason, but mm-hmm. that's ultimately what it is. And if someone could just easily go back in and edit it and say, no, I actually didn't spend these funds, they're still mine, obviously commerce cannot work like that. Right. So it uses those technologies to build out this money that that exists without having to worry about fraud or, or chargebacks or that kind of thing. But ultimately it also just detaches the actual issuance of money from the state. So no longer do you have to rely on like the U.S. government to issue dollars and and put dollars into the system to print them or anything like that, and no longer do you have to rely on them not inflating a currency away and and relying on something like what happened in the Weimar Republic where hyperinflation hit and the currency became valueless. You can rely on that not happening in Bitcoin because it ultimately has this this hard cap. Uh, we know the emissions for all time. We know the inflation rate. For all time, we know that there will only be 21 million coins. So you can do these things, but again, doing them in a way where you're not just having to trust some person or some entity. Mm-hmm. You can do this in a decentralized fashion using open source code and doing so in a way that that actually uses greed as an incentive and mm-hmm. uses um, other incentives to, to drive people to benefit the whole and to benefit the chain and to ultimately to benefit this decentralized, censorship-resistant peer-to-peer electronic cash, as Satoshi deemed it in the, the very beginning of, of his white paper. All right. So you threw out a lot of terms there, and we're going to get into all that yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> but first and foremost, I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects to this whole thing, is who is Satoshi Nakamoto, and, and how much Bitcoin does this guy own? Yeah, so no one really knows still. It's actually pretty amazing that after all this time and all the attention that Bitcoin has gotten and with how hard anonymity really is on mm-hmm. the internet, that this person or these people, it could be multiple people, have managed to remain completely anonymous. No one knows who they are or who actually is behind the creation of it. There's a lot of speculation and I can mm-hmm. dive into a little bit of, I think, some of the more compelling theories, but ultimately this person did, I think, the best thing for Bitcoin, the best thing for the technology, started it off as a, a, a pseudonym, ultimately, um, and someone acting behind that pseudonym, and then kind of faded into the background and went away. Uh, because as we see with really any open source project, and especially with cryptocurrency, when you're tying open source to money, so you have greed incentives mm-hmm. naturally baked in, things get really bad if you have a, a, a single leader who can drive things and continue to drive the project how he wants, and Ultimately, people end up trusting that central leader, and it breaks a lot of the the trust implications mm. in the system and causes lots of problems. But 
thankfully, I think he did the best thing for Bitcoin, even though not for himself. He could have got, gotten incredibly famous and leveraged it for his own personal gain, but kind of did this altruistically, it, it seems like, um, built this out. And, and ultimately, people speculate that he probably has about 1 million Bitcoin. Which, which is worth what? One, uh, I don't even know today. A lot of money. <laughs> it was like $40,000 $40, a coin recently, right? I mean, so in, the, in that ballpark, right? So billions of billions, tens of billions of dollars. Yeah, that would be $40 billion. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. Why, why do you, let's speculate a little bit. Why, why hasn't mm -hmm. any of that Bitcoin ever been spent? And, and maybe more, and this might answer that question, what would happen if it were spent? If all that money were, let's say Satoshi finally said, you know what, I'm cashing out. You know, and, and dropped all his Bitcoin on the market. What would happen? Yeah, I mean, it would be it would probably be a pretty catastrophic thing for the price itself. I mm. mean, the the interesting thing with Bitcoin is it is completely transparent. Everyone knows the addresses that Satoshi used or is is supposed to have used to to mine Bitcoin to in the early days. So we know the one million Bitcoin he has, and people would notice immediately if he started right. sending those funds anywhere. He could use certain tools to obfuscate where he sends them, but everyone would know that they moved. And ultimately, it would, I think, cause a massive price panic because 120, 121st, 121th, I don't know how to say that, <laughs> of the supply being moved or sold would be a very, very big deal. I mean, that's a massive amount of the total Bitcoin supply. There will only be 21 million. So him having 1 million and selling that would be an absolutely massive hit to the market and, and put a lot of Bitcoin on the market that that weren't there before. So I think ultimately, we'd see some some price panic and a lot of speculation again about who he is and and why he's selling. It would be really hard for him to actually sell because those coins are watched like a hawk. So I don't know that a, a centralized exchange or something like that would just allow him to deposit and, and sell those funds and walk away with his dollars. Well, that's so fascinating. It's, it's like a catch-22, right? I mean, it's his his or there. You know, well, again, we don't know that this mm -hmm. doesn't re represent like a pseudonym for a bunch of people, but mm -hmm. that they supposedly have all this money. They're, they're, they're multi-billionaires on paper anyway. And yet they kind of can't sell it. I think it's, I think that whole story is fascinating. Whatever that yeah. does, whenever we do find out what happened there, it's going to make a hell of a movie. Yeah, it, it really will. And there's some fascinating theories behind who he is. I think the most the most compelling one that I've heard so far is linking someone named Paul LaRue, which I don't know if you've heard about him, but he's kind of a, a criminal mastermind and he owned a kind of a, a cartel around pharmaceuticals and lots of interesting stuff. But he also was one of the people behind speculated to be behind TrueCrypt, one of the, hmm. the bigger encryption mm -hmm. technologies back in the day. Hmm. And ultimately, the predecessor for that, E4M, was the tool that he made before that that, that led to TrueCrypt. But hmm. there were some interesting legal documents that that linked him back to, to Bitcoin and kind of speculation around him potentially being Satoshi. And a lot of the timeline of what he was doing and, and ultimately when he was arrested in 2012 lines up fairly well with kind of where Bitcoin started, uh, when Satoshi started dropping off, him being arrested. And then mm. I think he actually died in 2019 could be a reason why the Bitcoin hasn't moved since, I'm not sure the last time any of that Bitcoin has moved, but I think it was 2010, maybe 2012. But that could be one of the reasons why like those funds are are not moving and haven't been used because you think you'd sell some of them at least. I mean, you have, right, right. <laughs> you have however many billions of dollars sitting around. Um, you think that, you, that you'd use some of those. So, that's kind of one of the compelling cases. And there's a really fascinating Wired article on on him and on kind of his history and some of the ways that he could be linked to Bitcoin. There's also other speculation like Adam Back, who's a, a, a famous cryptographer and somebody who's been kind of around the Bitcoin scene for a long time, potentially being Satoshi. 
some people think like maybe Nick Zabo has some has some kind of background as as Satoshi Nakamoto. There's there's a lot of kind of speculation, mm. but um, really no one no one does know, um, and no one knows like if it is Paul Rue, that would explain why he just kind of disappeared. But right. it's also kind of interesting to speculate like maybe he went on to work on another project, like the the founders of of Bitcoin. Were com- or sorry, of Monero were completely pseudonymous. There's a lot of a lot of concepts that Satoshi talked about before he disappeared that lined up exactly with the technological approaches taken in Monero. So it'd be interesting to speculate if maybe he's one of the people who was behind kickstarting Monero or one of the people who's even working on Monero today as a pseudonymous dev, but no one really knows. <laughs> I just find that totally fascinating. What are the core concepts behind cryptocurrency is something you've already mentioned called blockchain. Can you explain, in layman's terms, what that is and why it's so important here? Yeah, definitely happy to, to walk through it a bit. It's it's kind of funny. I spend so much time in the cryptocurrency scene that I don't actually get to explain the simple aspects of it to too many people because mm-hmm. I'm normally talking to people who understand these right these basics of cryptocurrency. But I understand they're they're very uh, foreign to people who haven't been kind of steeped in the the cryptocurrency world. The blockchain itself, like I said before. It's a very simple concept. It it really is. It's a database. It's a, a form of database that you could also call it a time chain. And essentially, what it is is that in order to add data to this database, you have to well in Bitcoin the way that it's used is you have to do this this provably hard work to add these new blocks of data onto this time chain to add new transactions into the chain to add this new data. Um, and the other unique thing about blockchains is that they're also immutable. So the things that you put into the chain. Later on, once you've continued building on this chain and added blocks along it, you can't go back and just edit something that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. They're cryptographically designed to where every block that you add on, you have to successively do more work to go back in time and change something that happened in the past. So it's a very fitting technology for money. Um, it's not very fitting for practically any other use case. But for decentralized currency, where you need a way to keep this this state of accounts, you need this way to to keep up with who has paid whom, who has how much money, all of these things in a way that is not easy to change, that cannot be forged, um, that's hard for people to to lie about or cheat about. Blockchain serves this purpose really, really well. And that that kind of is a unique use case for blockchain. And it's, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a technology that's been around for a very long time, I think since the 90s. Hmm. But there's not really a lot of powerful uses for it because it's extremely inefficient. If you just want to store data, a simple database, MySQL, Postgres, whatever you want to use, is going to be much, much faster. But having a decentralized ledger of transactions or information through that type of database is much more difficult and much easier for people to cheat on. So within a blockchain, it actually serves this decentralized purpose very well. And, and the inefficiency is much less harmful because you're you're securing something that's very valuable, which is money, and you're, you're securing these transactions and you need something that's that's hard to change, um, that's hard to add new data into, but that's also immutable and, and can kind of stand the test of time. All right, so let me let me dig into that just a little bit at a, a more little technical level. So you, you use the word ledger, which I think a lot of people certainly in a financial sense would have a better understanding of maybe what mm-hmm. that what that means. So it is a decentralized distributed ledger, yep. which is basically a, a kind of a global copy of every transaction ever done with Bitcoin, correct? Yeah, yeah. So every time someone makes a transaction, ultimately what happens is it gets submitted through these nodes that have the blockchain on them and that have validated the blockchain to this point. And then once that transaction is verified as being legitimate, is not trying to spend coins that have already been spent, all of that kind of stuff, 
it gets put into a new block when a miner mines that block, and then that block gets appended onto the the end of the chain. And so over time, you build in these blocks that have that that copy of each transaction, and and those transactions essentially say this coin is being spent. These are the outputs. Usually it's like the output to the person you're spending and the change back. Like if you were spending a $20 bill for a $10 charge, you would get $10 back in change. That goes back to the same person. Uh, but it's keeping this ledger of accounts and this this ledger of transactions in a way that, like you said, is decentralized. Everyone who runs a node within Bitcoin has a copy of this this decentralized ledger, this uh, this blockchain. And so they can go back historically and understand every transaction that comes in when someone's trying to spend funds, they can compare it all the way back through the blockchain and make sure no one has tried to spend this coin before. Um, no one is trying to to cheat that this person actually has this money to spend, um, mm. that they have the the private keys that can sign and, and transfer these funds over to this, this other account that they're trying to transfer it to, um, all of that kind of stuff. So again, just to drill a little bit further. So we could talk about spending coins. We could actually spend fractions of a coin, yes? You don't have to, you don't mm-hmm. have to do one whole coin, otherwise, you know, buying a pizza for a coin is now $40,000 uh, or whatever. So you could do fractions of coins, but this ledger has a complete history for all time of every fraction of a Bitcoin that has ever been spent. And it's including who it was spent, who who bought it, who sold it in terms of some anonymous wallet ID. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. So, so Bitcoin is, is ultimately pseudonymous. It's not anonymous, it's mm-hmm. pseudonymous. And, and the way that that works is that within Bitcoin, Every coin is essentially given this uh, this address is what it's called, and it's just a, a unique identifier for each coin. And, and we treat those addresses like identities because you can send coins to those, and you're transferring ownership over to that that wallet. Uh, when you receive funds, you give someone this address, which is just this short string, short alphanumeric string, and they can cryptographically sign over a coin or a portion of a coin. And coin really is just an output within Bitcoin itself. Like you said, it, it can be anything all the way from one Satoshi, which is the very smallest unit of account, um, which I think is one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin, all the way up to, obviously, the, the total supply of Bitcoin, but no one has 21 million Bitcoin. <laughs> but ultimately, you can sign that over to that address. So so within every transaction, there's a, a sender and a receiver. Uh, there could be multiple receivers. There mm-hmm. can be multiple input coins. So if you if you have a coin of one Bitcoin and a coin of five Bitcoin, you need to spend six Bitcoin. You have to spend both the one and the five coin. To be able to to do that, and, and ultimately all of that is handled by wallets. You don't have to think about that when you're spending. But yeah, there's ultimately this this permanent ledger of who sent funds to who, um, and not necessarily bought and sold because exchanges mm, generally right. don't don't tie that information directly to a blockchain, even though they would have record of what person bought and sold what Bitcoin at what time, where they withdrew to, where they deposited from, that kind of thing. But ultimately, you do have this. This pseudonymity and ultimately very fragile pseudonymity in Bitcoin where, yes, there's no ID directly on the blockchain, but because you have these addresses that are transparent, these amounts that are transparent, and you have these permanent, immutable, theoretically lasting forever records of who sent money to who, how much, when, it can unravel a lot of the pseudonymity very quickly if you tie ID to it in any in any fashion. Let's back up a little bit, maybe go back to first principles here. What what problem is cryptocurrency trying to solve? Like, why do we need this when we have cash, when we have credit cards, when we have all sorts of ways to, to exchange money? We even have, I mean, if you want to just do cash, that's mostly anonymous, I guess, if you, mm-hmm. if you really have true cash. What, is it, what do we try to solve with cryptocurrency? 
So it really depends on what cryptocurrency you're talking about and, and who you're talking to, because really it can serve many different purposes. I think if we look back at why it seems like Satoshi kicked off Bitcoin and the focus is around that, I think we see a lot of people wanting to separate money from the state and mm-hmm. seeing a lot of the issues. I mean, he created Bitcoin in 2008 and, and released it in 2009 and um, I think tied a lot into the financial crisis that happened around mm-hmm. that time. And so I think... He saw it, and, and people still see it as this way to to take the control of money away from the state, to stop giving governments the ability to do whatever they want hmm. with not only our money, but also the money supply itself, hmm. um, not allowing them to just print money whenever they want, not allowing them to spend as much money as they want, but also allowing people to have financial freedom in the sense of being able to spend how they see fit and when they see fit. And ultimately, a lot of the the principles of cash from the method of exchange aspect of cryptocurrency, cash is actually really the, the target. Um, like in Monero, a lot of the times, the, the way that I pitch Monero is that it's digital cash because cash has a lot of great aspects. It's it's instant finality. You just hand it to the person and you're done. You can't do anything to charge back or anything like that. Mm. Obviously, cash is, is very, very private, can be completely anonymous, depending on obviously how you do the transaction, but it's a very good method of exchange. So we, a lot of cryptocurrency aims to kind of emulate the aspects of cash but in a digital format because obviously the main pain point with cash is if you're ordering something on Amazon and you want to ship to your house, sending them cash in an envelope or something <laughs> is not going to be a, a fun way to transact. I don't even, I doubt you can even do that, but <laughs> even if you could, you wouldn't want to be just sending them wads of cash every, right. every few days when you order something. So having a, a digital form of that that retains that that anonymity, that privacy, um, that finality is a, is a powerful thing. But ultimately also, it really allows this, this free flow of commerce and, and economy and allows this uh, a building up of a circular and parallel economy outside of the state's control necessarily. And this isn't something that you only need in, in states that are tyrannical or authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, these can be things that are, are vital even in uh, relatively free states, especially I think as we've seen a lot of countries kind of shifting towards authoritarianism, um, having a way to be able to, to store value and, and spend without permission and without censorship is a, a very powerful tool. And, and this can be a powerful tool for donations. It can be a, lo- a lot of different ways it can be used um, to enable things that wouldn't be possible without cryptocurrency. But I think the other really big use case is a, a store of value similar to gold, but with the benefits of being a, a digital currency. So a lot of people have talked about kind of the, the store of value properties of gold in the past and how it has been used for that for thousands of years at this point, um, but the store of value and a method of exchange for a lot of time, but obviously not a method of exchange anymore uh, for good reason. Right. But being able to have a, a digital currency that can emulate some of the store of value properties of gold, like a very low inflation rate, like fungibility, where where any kind of piece of gold is equal to another in value, obviously depending by weight. Those kind of aspects that make gold a, a powerful store of value, bringing those into the digital world, again, have a lot of those benefits. Just like bringing cash into the digital world is immensely powerful for making payments, bringing gold into the digital world and having a, a store of value that can emulate those things. And again, that's outside of the reach of the state. It can't be confiscated, also just easy to transfer. So if mm. you have a store of value that you can easily transfer to someone else, it's much more powerful than trying to ship them a gold bar or transfer a million dollars in gold or something like that. So there's a lot of different pieces that go mm. along with it. But ultimately, I think the essence of it is to give back financial freedom and self-sovereignty to the individual to kind of 
leverage self-responsibility and taking ownership into your own hands and, and giving you the tools to be able to do that, whether or not you have the state's permission. So if you're in a, a great country, awesome. It can still be a valuable tool. If you're in an authoritarian country, it could be a, a life-saving tool. Uh, it could be something that is, is literally life and death. It can aid you when you're fleeing from a, a country that's oppressive and fleeing across the border. All you have to do is memorize this this 12 or 24 word seed phrase and you can have all of your wealth purely stored up in your mind just through memorization, which is a, a crazy concept, but mm. a massive leap forward over trying to smuggle jewels or gold or something like that over the border. And I think we we can think about some of this. And there's been a lot of interesting news coming out of Ukraine with refugees mm-hmm. fleeing what's happening in Ukraine and fleeing across the border and carrying their wealth with them through cryptocurrency. And it's become a, a powerful tool there. So I think there's a lot of different value. Ultimately, it comes down to the things that that you need out of it. But there's a lot of a lot of just giving back financial freedom and self-sovereignty to people rather than resting that solely with the state itself. Well, and and obviously I could see where the state might have some issues with some of that too, as being supplanted as 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 a source yeah. of currency. We'll get back, we'll get back to that in a minute. Bitcoin is often portrayed as anonymous, and you're right, it's not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, um, in which we've discussed on the show before what the differences are, and you uh, outlined that perfectly. But nevertheless, it does kind of allow you to buy stuff without giving away your identity to a point. And many people Mm -hmm. would argue that Bitcoin specifically uh, has enabled the entire ransomware industry for this reason, because (laughs) the, you know, the bad guys get paid off in Bitcoin and and you can kind of track it back. If you look back at the rise of ransomware, it was kind of coincides with the rise of, you know, of Bitcoin. So is Bitcoin truly anonymous? Uh, I I know what you're going to say. You've kind of alluded to already. And then what about perhaps, uh, other currencies like Monero. Yeah, so this uh, the ransomware angle is, is an interesting one, and definitely we'll we'll chat about that a bit. But yeah, like I said, I mean, Bitcoin it, early on it was thought to be anonymous. I think a lot of people were kind of told that it was mm-hmm. this anonymous internet money uh, that you could use for whatever you wanted, whether it was something totally normal or something extremely illicit. You could use it for these things and not have to worry about it, it coming back to bite you. And uh, I think a lot of people thought that it was digital cash but didn't really realize the impact of this the fragile pseudonymity that it actually had, which is like we talked about. It's where these these addresses are easily visible on chain. The transaction flows are easily visible on chain. The way that most people transact in Bitcoin, I could easily trace the way that they're spending funds on a simple blocked explorer. It's it's not a complex thing at all. And so if that address is at any point or if any address along that chain of you spending or receiving funds, is tied back to your identity. And that could be something as clear as you used a, an exchange that uses know your customer and money laundering laws. And so they they force you to go over your, your ID and a photo of yourself and a video of you dancing with your passport or all these different things to, to get permission to, to buy and sell cryptocurrency there. Obviously, then that exchange can directly link all of your on-chain activity from when you deposit funds or withdraw funds directly yeah. to the ID. Yeah, so let's um, stop right there because that's a key yeah. thing. And I think a lot of people don't get that. Ex- so what is a Bitcoin exchange and why do I need one? And wh- how does that play in this whole thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big part. Um, and I know we we plan to talk a, a little bit about regulation later, which mm-hmm. I think is a, a big angle there as well. But ultimately, to get Bitcoin or something like Monero, I mean, any cryptocurrency, there's really only two ways. One is to buy it in some way, or I should say there's three ways. One is to buy it in some way. So obviously using like dollars to buy Bitcoin. And that's the way most people come into something like Bitcoin. You can also earn it for providing some kind of good or service. That's pretty rare, but thankfully is growing because I think that's a very important piece of, of building circular economies within 
within Bitcoin, within Monero, or you can mine it and be one of these people who's doing this this provably hard work to verify transactions and, and add blocks to this blockchain. And for doing that work, you get rewarded directly by the network in a decentralized fashion where no one has control over it. You get paid Bitcoin for doing that. So those are really the three ways you can get Bitcoin, but mining Bitcoin is extremely hard. Um, mm-hmm. You have to put in a lot of money and a lot of effort to be able to do that. It is doable. You can do it at home, um, but it is definitely not simple. So most people are not mining Bitcoin to get it. Most people are not selling goods or providing services to get Bitcoin. So most people are going that angle of actually just using dollars to buy Bitcoin, uh, which obviously is the easiest approach. And when you do that, you have to get it from someone. Um, Most people get it through what is commonly called a centralized exchange or sometimes called a, a KYC exchange, that know your customer term. And these are just the exchanges like Coinbase, like Kraken, like Binance, these these big name exchanges where you can just deposit dollars or whatever currency you use. You can choose what currency you want to buy and sell at whatever the, the current price is. Really just like stock trading, same mm-hmm. concept. There's not really much difference there. But then once you buy it, you can actually withdraw it to your own wallet and then do whatever you want with it. So that, that's really the main difference from the speculative side where many people just sit on exchanges and buy and sell and they never actually use the cryptocurrency. But the difference is you can just withdraw that cryptocurrency and start using it for all of the other benefits we talked about earlier, the, the store of value benefits, the ability to, to transact without censorship, all of those things. But those centralized exchanges are generally regulated and are, are generally forced by not really by laws. It's usually this kind of shadowy back-channel banker pressure um, mm-hmm. to enforce these things called know your customer or anti-money laundering, often called KYC AML. Mm-hmm. These laws and the, or these regulations, not laws usually, that basically force the exchanges to gather as much personally identifiable information about customers as possible in the guise or in the, the effort of preventing money laundering. These measures are extraordinarily ineffective. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the numbers that I see is that they prevent about 1% at best of Mm -hmm. money laundering, even though they harm many, many more users than they actually uh, Mm -hmm. protect money from money laundering. Because once you submit all this information and you've tied all these things back to your blockchain addresses, so you've, you've tied this back to your Bitcoin deposits that you've made to the withdrawals where you've taken funds out, that information at best is kept by the exchange, but then they can they can go after you. A government can go after you if they want to, if they want to ban Bitcoin or something. They have this this neat and tidy list of everyone's home addresses, their IDs, and how much Bitcoin they bought or sold, where they've withdrawn to, what they've done with it, all of these kinds of things. But the more dangerous thing to most people is that these exchanges are generally not professional cybersecurity companies mm. um, and generally do not put in the time and effort they need to protect that data. <laughs> and there have been many, 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 many exchange hacks over mm. the years where this data that people give over in order to be able to buy and sell cryptocurrency is hacked or leaked or something happens and the data gets out. And then people have a nice, neat, tidy list of who owns cryptocurrency and where they live. Uh, mm. And that that becomes a an easy tool to use for targeted attacks, the, the kind of the, the classic $5 wrench attack, as it's called, where <laughs> right. you can just go after someone, threaten physical violence, and get them to, to, send, you, to, to send you all of their, their Bitcoin or whatever they have. And that's really only possible because of these KYC AML regulations, where all of these exchanges are just hoovering up this personally identifiable information, tying it to amounts of cryptocurrency. And there's a lot of negative aspects there. You can buy cryptocurrency directly from people. So generally the routes I recommend are 
or the kind of the peer-to-peer buying face-to-face mm-hmm. with cash or cash by mail or uh, money order. There's lots of different ways to do it, but you can just buy cryptocurrency directly from people and you can you can usually work around the issues and the risks inherent with KYC AML regulations by doing that. Um, but that's definitely a, a big topic in and of itself. Well, back to the ransomware thing then, is that yeah. it's kind of like when a thief steals something. It's usually when they go to fence it that they get into trouble, right? It, <laughs> right? Is it the same yeah. kind of thing where, you know, it, with the ransomware folks, it, 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 let's go back to the ransomware thing. Yeah. How was the rise of Bitcoin tied to the rise of ransomware? And haven't everything you just laid out, doesn't that just allow these guys to still get caught? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the vast majority of the way that the people who are doing this ransomware get caught is either through other failures in OPSEC where they somehow kind of tie back who they are to their their real world identity. But oftentimes, and we've seen this rapidly increasing, the things that they do with their generally Bitcoin are traced and they're able to be caught on these centralized exchanges because people who know what they're doing when monitoring the blockchain, especially in Bitcoin, can follow the path of their transactions even when they do different things to try to obfuscate it and, and hide where they send funds and ultimately figure out what exchanges they're sending funds to and then get their accounts closed, get their ID, again, if they're using an exchange that requires this kind of uh, personally identifiable information, they can track them down and then and then shut things down there. So definitely the hardest aspect for ransomware, for any kind of um, like crypto jacking, all of these kinds of things, generally the place that they get caught is that those funds get traced or they have another slip up in OPSEC um, and ultimately they get caught trying to cash that out for dollars because there isn't much you can spend Bitcoin on, right. especially not at the scale that they're collecting money. Um, it's not something where you can easily just spend millions, millions of dollars in Bitcoin. Um, you need to cash that out. So that that aspect definitely gets tricky, and that's that's usually where they're caught. But the the idea of ransomware arising with the advent of Bitcoin uh, is definitely true. I mean, it, it enables these at least pseudonymous transfers of money that just weren't possible before. I mean, you could you could have people try to do things like uh, send gift cards in bulk or um, use other services that are definitely problematic for these hackers because they, they're centralized and they have visibility and everything like PayPal and other services, right. money orders. Like There were ways to do it before and it happened before Bitcoin, but obviously it does simplify the process for them because they can break into your network, they can crypto lock encrypt everything on your network and then demand this ransom in Bitcoin and all they have to do is provide you a Bitcoin address and then you have to figure out how you can get that Bitcoin if you want to pay them. Um, You shouldn't pay them, but if you want to pay Mm. them, you can just send the Bitcoin to the address and then they can do what they want with it. Again, they often get caught after that, but it at least provides that payment method where they can get the funds in a way that's not preventable. It can't be censored. It's not going to be confiscated by some kind of uh, third party like PayPal or something. Um, so it does enable that. But I think the thing that a lot of people, a lot of people put the onus on cryptocurrency as being the problem with ransomware. And as somebody who's worked in cybersecurity for a few years, obviously not decades, but for quite a few years, the problem that ransomware is exposing is not one that is caused by cryptocurrency, but is really the the failure in companies today to put the proper funding and emphasis on cybersecurity yeah. and on protecting their networks and on protecting their assets. And, and ransomware has just exposed that. Yeah, It's not like there were not these problems before and there <sighs> right. are now because of ransomware. It's just exposing a, a long-standing issue where cybersecurity gets put in the bottom of the barrel, when funding mm. goes around in companies, they get the least they can possibly afford because <laughs> cybersecurity doesn't make you money generally. It right. costs you money, and it doesn't right. provide a, a tangible benefit. Obviously, it provides a, an essential benefit, but it doesn't provide something where you can see the, the dollar signs. Yeah. 
So usually those teams are small, they're underfunded, they're undereducated, they don't get to do the training that they need. All of these issues compound. And then obviously vulnerabilities happen and and there are things that are exposed that then ransomware hackers or there are many other types of obviously malicious attackers and malicious attacks. But really ransomware is just exposing a broader problem in the cybersecurity space. And the thing that needs to be fixed is not to prevent Bitcoin from being used or shut down Bitcoin or Monero or any of these. A, because you can't, but B, because it doesn't solve the ultimate problem. And if if you shut down ransomware, other types of attacks are just going to happen because we're not addressing the root of the problem in the cybersecurity world and and actually appreciating the, the world that we're in, which is one where proper cybersecurity practice, properly funded teams, um, a proper focus on that from the bottom to top of organizations, even if they're not IT organizations, is something that, that has to be addressed there. And then once you address that, ransomware goes away because it becomes mm-hmm. too hard and too complex to get into these networks and, and ultimately not worth it because most of the time ransomware attacks don't get paid. There's lots of, obviously, complications of getting caught. So if you can make it hard enough, ransomware will just go away and then Bitcoin and Monero and others can continue to be used for the the good, positive things that they can be used for. While Bitcoin gets most of the attention in the mainstream media, there are many others. We've mentioned at least one other here, Monero. But there's there's dozens. I mean, there there's a lot of crypto. I mean, because anybody could start one, right? The technology's yeah. there. I, I mean, I, I remember trying to mine something. I think it was called Zcoin or something a while back. I didn't I didn't succeed. I, I think it. I, I think that <laughs> fell by the wayside anyway. But. Tell us about some of these other other coins. I mean, I've been doing it here because Bitcoin's the one that get all, gets all the attention, but there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies. So what are some of the other main alternatives to Bitcoin and how do they differ? Yeah, so I'll kind of focus on two because I think they're at least some of the most interesting. I mean, there, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies. Mm. And as someone who spends a lot of time in the cryptocurrency scene, the cryptocurrency scene is pretty awful. <laughs> most <laughs> are scams. Most are just pump and dump schemes where people mm. are trying to make a quick buck. Uh, most are, are not good at all. But there are some really interesting other things outside of Bitcoin um, out there. And ultimately, obviously, Bitcoin started this whole thing yeah. and has a lot of attributes that are extremely useful and important and obviously has proven itself as a store of value and all these other things. But the main two I think I, I want to focus on are, are Monero and Ethereum. Mm-hmm. So Monero first, it has a lot of similar features to Bitcoin. Um, it's also proof of work. It also uses a blockchain very similar to, to Bitcoin. But the main thing that differentiates it from Bitcoin is that it really focuses on the privacy of every user, no matter their their tech savvy, no matter their amount of money, no matter their amount of time to spend on gaining privacy. And it focuses on decentralization in some different ways than Bitcoin. So the main thing with the the approach to privacy, and like I talked about it, a kind of an easy way to describe Monero is it's digital cash. It takes those those aspects of cash, that anonymity, that ability to easily spend directly to people with no third party seeing what's going on. It does all of that by default. You don't have to worry about protecting your privacy in, mm. in Monero. Um, you can kind of think of it like the, the signal, like the signal messenger of, of mm. cryptocurrencies and that you just use it. You can just switch to using it like you switch from text messages to Signal. Once you start using Signal, you're gaining all of these strong end-to-end encryption guarantees, all of these strong cryptographic protections without having to think about it. You just send messages and you're good to go. And Monero is very similar. It, it provides this strong default privacy. It, it enforces every transaction being the same, every transaction using... Um, there's three main approaches how it does that. I don't have to dive into that, but... Essentially, in Monero, you just press send and you get these strong privacy guarantees that you don't get in Bitcoin, you don't get in Ethereum, you don't get in any other cryptocurrency today. And that's one of the reasons we're really seeing Monero's usage 
boom across the board because obviously people are starting to realize that having their ID attached to a permanent ledger or their transactions easily traceable on a permanent ledger is not something that's good for personal privacy long-term. And that's whether you're doing illicit things with it or just doing normal transactions with it. You don't really want a permanent ledger of all of your financial transactions (laughs) out there for anyone to just look up on any block explorer and see what you're doing with those funds. So um, how, does, how, does, how does Monero do that then? Is there not still the global yeah. uh, ledger that everybody could see in the same IDs? How, how does it differ from Bitcoin? How does it how does it manage? And don't you still have to go through an exchange to convert to a fiat currency? Yeah, so so usually, I mean, the, the same aspects of how to acquire it apply. So you have to either buy it with money that can be through a, a centralized exchange with those KYC issues that we talked about earlier. That could be uh, earning it for goods and services or that could be mining it. The main differences are that even if you use one of these KYC exchanges, and I do not recommend that, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but even if you do that, once you withdraw your Monero from that exchange, that exchange has no visibility into what you do with the money afterwards. Unlike Bitcoin, where like mm. with Bitcoin, if you withdraw and you start spending money or sending it to your friends, that kind of thing, the exchange can easily follow the, the patterns of where you're sending money and what you're doing, doing with it. With Monero, they can't do that. So you remove that that one issue of KYC exchanges where they have visibility into the things you do with the Monero that you bought. They don't have visibility with Monero. But the other main differentiation with how you can actually acquire it is that Monero is actually CPU mined. So any computer can be used to mine Monero. It's different from Bitcoin where originally Bitcoin started out as CPU mined and then eventually became mineable by GPUs. And then ended up being mined by ASICs, this uh, this single application um, integrated circuit. Well, I don't want to forget this. You mentioned Ethereum as well. So how does how does Ethereum differ from these two? Yeah, uh, one quick thing about Monero too before oh, we move ahead. on. Yes. Um, just, I, do, I do want to make it clear. So there is still this decentralized immutable ledger that everyone can verify and that everyone can make sure there's there's no cheating going on, there's no double spins, there's no no funny business happening. And you can do that even though there are no addresses on chain so anytime you send and receive funds in Monero, when you give someone an address, they actually generate a, a unique one-time address that mm. actually goes on the blockchain. So there are no linkable addresses mm. on chain in Monero, but that's not a problem for verification. There's also no amounts visible on the blockchain in Monero. So when you send funds to someone, you're able to basically build this cryptographic proof that says, I am sending the right amount, the inputs and the outputs of this transaction balance, but you can do so in a way that doesn't reveal the actual amount. And that's a very powerful thing for yeah. privacy, but it, it does not break the verifiability. So huh. still anyone in the world can run a Monero node and verify those transactions and, and prove cryptographically that the amounts add up, that they had the amount that they needed to spend, that they're not creating funds out of thin air, all of that. And then the third main piece to Monero privacy is that you can't actually tell which coin or coins are being spent in a transaction because it uses something called ring signatures, and essentially that just introduces these decoy inputs that hmm. have been used in the past and that exist on chain. And you can sign for, right now, 10 decoys and your real coin and prove that you are spending funds and that they, again, that they add up, that everything matches properly, but without revealing which of the inputs are actually yours. Hmm. Um, and so that gives you this plausible deniability that one of those are, are yours, but no one can actually see which one is yours. So it does all these things without breaking the the decentralized verifiability, without breaking any of the things that make Bitcoin great, but while preserving that the privacy of every hmm. user. All right. So how, how does Ethereum fit into all this? 
Yeah, so Ethereum is vastly different from Bitcoin and Monero. So it's a very different approach. Uh, ultimately, if anyone's heard of of NFTs or or DeFi, mm. these these different approaches to building things that aren't just like a currency. Most of that happens on Ethereum, or at least started on Ethereum. And Ethereum takes some some very different approaches to Bitcoin. It, it uses something called an account based model, where there's not coins in Ethereum, but there's actually accounts where um, there's a record of how much you have of what you have. And then it allows you to essentially write programs that run on the Ethereum blockchain that the nodes in the Ethereum network run in a decentralized manner and that are, again, verifiable, that everyone can make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. But you can build these things called smart contracts that allow you to do a lot. You can essentially program uh, these scripts that will allow you to do things like building out um, decentralized exchanges where you can actually buy and sell different cryptocurrencies, not usually directly for like dollars or, or fiat, but swapping between cryptocurrencies in a way that is um, decentralized. There's no central party you're going through. You're able to do it with other people, but in a way that's trustless, that's verifiable on chain, all of that. Um, you can also do things like building out ways to handle issuing loans, building mm. things like stable coins, which are, are pegged to, to the dollar. So you can have a, a cryptocurrency that uses some method. There are lots of different approaches. Uh, most of them are not have not worked over the long haul because it's hard to build something that's pegged to a centralized yeah. currency in a decentralized way. But right. it allows you to try to build these things that that can not have the the rapidly fluctuating value of the rest of cryptocurrencies, but still have the other aspects of how you can transfer them easily and have complete control over them, all of that. So, so ultimately, Ethereum enables these really interesting kind of bank-like features that you kind of need in... Or not you kind of you, you do need in a decentralized fashion and you need to be able to build all these economies that would exist outside of the state but it takes a very different approach and it has a lot of different trade-offs and and problems compared to bitcoin and monero but ultimately is trying to solve a different purpose um so it's it's very different but i think something like it will be very very important in the long run whether that's ethereum or something else in order to enable you to do more advanced things than just send and receive currency, but doing it again in a decentralized, trustless, um, verifiable way. All right. So we've we've mentioned mining Bitcoin or mining cryptocurrency several times now. And one of the other aspects that gets a lot of media attention around Bitcoin is its impact on the environment, on the climate, mm -hmm. because it's become so difficult to mine that the amount of energy involved, the, the compute power put into it is astronomical now. So first of all, help us understand what it means to mine Bitcoin or, you know, cryptocurrency of Bitcoin may be particular. And I know there's proof of work and there's various aspects of this, but some of these, the one, the way Bitcoin was structured specifically required a lot of computer energy, but more over time. So explain how that all works. Yeah. So for simplicity's sake, we'll just look at Bitcoin because um, yeah. that's going to simplify the conversation. But <laughs> Ultimately, in Bitcoin, like we talked about before, this this blockchain, you need a way to be able to add data into it, but also to prevent people from going back in time and changing the history of transactions. Because like we talked about, if you make a transaction, you, you, you pay someone for something, if you can go back and edit it to change it to say, oh, no, actually, I didn't send those funds, but you've already gotten the good or service mm -hmm. that you paid for, obviously, that doesn't work as a right. currency. Uh, that's That's never going to function. And so to do that in a decentralized way, one of the big breakthroughs of Bitcoin was to leverage this idea of proof of work that had existed for a while, mostly as like an anti-spam measure and email and other things, but to leverage that to actually 
leverage greed as an incentive as a security method for this decentralized ledger of transactions. And ultimately, the way that this works is that the people who are often called miners, these people who are are validating transactions, but really are just building these blocks of transactions, which are just a a blob of data that has this list of transactions that that are happening or that have happened that they want to add onto the blockchain to be able to get the the privilege to add that on and get the associated reward for building that block because the network rewards every every block that's mined gets a certain amount of Bitcoin and they get the fees that people pay to get their transactions included in the block. So in order to do that, you have to do something that is is provably hard. And that sounds like a simple concept, but essentially what that means is you have to be able to show in a cryptographic manner that you did something extremely hard that took a lot of energy, that took a lot of time, so that it's very, very hard for you to go back in time and edit this history of transactions mm. because to add a new block on only takes a certain amount of work but if you want to also change something 10 blocks ago you have to do all of the work that it takes to mine all 11 of those blocks to add the new block and then to change the history of those last 10 blocks which would essentially require you to have more than half of the network's computing power it's often called a 51% attack yeah and and that just means that you have to have more than 51% or more of the the compute power on the network. And if you have that, you can change the history of transactions at least a little bit. You can't go back like to the beginning of Bitcoin, hmm. but you could change maybe the last block or the last couple of blocks or or many blocks, depending on how much compute power you have. And so you have to do this thing that's provably hard, that people can verify that you did the work, that you didn't cheat, that you did what you needed to do to be able to mine this. Um, and that takes a lot of energy. And it's commonly being pushed right now as being something that is extremely detrimental to the environment and a, a net negative. But I think there's there's two things I want to point out. One is that you cannot have decentralized currency without this. There have been lots of conversations around doing something called proof of stake, hmm. which is a, a different approach that doesn't require the same kind of energy requirements. But there are lots of flaws with that. There are very few, almost no cryptocurrencies that have done it successfully. There are a lot of other issues with Basically, the people who get in earliest will have an ever-growing supply and ever, ever-growing ever control over the network. It, it breaks a lot of the decentralization. There's a lot of problems with proof-of-stake as a concept. So right now, at least, the only way to have a decentralized currency and one that is censorship-resistant, that is trustless, that doesn't have this centralized party that decides who gets to transact and who doesn't, you need proof-of-work. And there's there's just not really a way around that right now. But the other main point that I want to make, and there's been some great research into this, and, and I can give you a, a link that you can drop in the show notes if you'd like, but the way that this works actually incentivizes a lot of good things for the energy grid, a lot of good things for renewable energy, and a lot of good things for the environment through utilizing excess power, uh, preventing flaring of things like natural gas um, that would release tons of pollutants into the air. And it does this because those people who are mining Bitcoin, the only input they have is power. So if the cost that they can get their power at can be lower and lower and lower, as close to nothing as possible, they are essentially making more and more profit. And there's not really anything else involved in the investment. They have to buy the hardware up front, but then really the only main operating cost is that electricity cost. And what that incentivizes is it incentivizes people to go both closer to the source of energy so they can get cheaper costs, and it incentivizes them to go to these places that have excess power, that have uh, low-cost renewable energy, Mm and mine closer to the source and mine these types of energy that are cheaper to actually use. Um, so it actually, it, right now, Bitcoin is estimated to be using about 50% renewable energy. 
hmm. um, which a lot of people don't talk about. Yeah. But it also has this, and I just actually was at a conference and saw a presentation by someone who's who's helping to build out these uh, huts that you can buy as a miner and set up on these uh, these places where they're collecting natural gas. And if they have too much, they essentially have to just burn it off into the environment. And uh, it's called flaring. Hmm. And you can you can buy these huts, put Bitcoin ASICs in them, and mine Bitcoin there. And so that this excess energy that they would have to just burn off into the atmosphere, you're actually able to convert into Bitcoin and convert into a profitable business, huh. which is a really fascinating way to actually yeah. help prevent environmental damage. Interesting. And it also provides a lot of uh, stability to the energy grid. And there's there's a lot of deeper aspects of this that I'm not an expert in, um, but a lot of specifically in Texas, they had a, they've had a lot of issues with energy grid stability. And if you can have these miners that can quickly consume energy or not consume energy, they can just switch off their ASICs. Mm-hmm. You can have them basically balance out the energy grid and absorb excess energy in the times when there's too much being generated by whatever power source is there. And you can have them switch off when you have too little electricity. And it's not like other industries where if you're running like a, a aluminum smelting or something, you're doing something that you, you need to just keep doing 24-7. <laughs> yeah. um, you can't just turn off because electricity is expensive. It's different than Bitcoin where these Bitcoin miners could even programmatically monitor electricity cost and, and grid load and all of these things and use that to mine or not mine depending on different circumstances. So there's a lot of aspects to it that actually are beneficial and a lot of the good pieces don't get talked about, but obviously sure. there there is a lot of energy usage involved. Yeah. Um, and that is not something you can work around while still having a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. But the the greed incentives actually push it in many ways to use renewable energy, to go to the source, to prevent flaring, to prevent excess power being lost. There, there's a lot of good benefits that come with it because these miners need cheap electricity and they're incentivized to find those places that have extremely cheap electricity. All right, so this is this is... One of the most fascinating parts about Bitcoin as well, and something that I think a lot of people just cannot wrap their heads around, and my, myself to some degree as well, and that is, what is the basis for cryptocurrency's value? Like, with fiat currency issued by a government, it's backed by, you know, we often say in the US, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, right? We're no longer on the gold standard. We're no longer actually tying, you know, how many bills we print to, you know, some reserves in Fort Knox. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, you know, when, when the US prints money, the U.S. government stands behind that and whatever, you know, financial instruments that uh, the, the Fed produces to make all, to make all that happen. And that's a whole course in finances we're not going to get to. But I think people can still kind of vaguely understand how money from uh, a company printed by a country like the United States would have some intrinsic value. Where on, where on earth do, is the value of cryptocurrency coming from? Yeah, so it's a really interesting aspect. And I mean, ultimately, to sum it up, right now, a lot of the value in cryptocurrency comes purely from the speculative angle mm-hmm. of trying to to buy and to speculate on future price increases and mm-hmm. essentially to sell to the greater fool. And a lot of that does happen in these these more scam cryptocurrencies that don't have a real use case that, that are created to make money. So a lot of it can just be kind of the, the penny stock idea of these these things that you can bet money on and hope they appreciate in value. But for those cryptocurrencies that do have actual use case, and we can focus maybe on, on Bitcoin and Monero here, the the thing that gives them value is their ability to be used as a method of exchange, I think is ultimately the main thing. And so this tool being usable to buy goods and services, to uh, to make censorship-resistant payments, to, to transfer value, and ultimately the ability for these things to be used to, to store value because of that method of exchange 
leads to them appreciating over time and to them having value. I mean, ultimately money is just a way for you to transfer work that you've done into something that you can easily use to, to get goods and services to, to store wealth and that kind of thing. So like, there's no inherent value in the dollar. It's just the, the idea that when I go to spend it, it will be good because the government decrees by law that it is good and spendable and, and usable for these things. But something like Bitcoin, I think, really gains its value from its its use case as a method of exchange, its its use case as a store of value, and the ability it has to offer things like, for the store of value angle, for, for it to offer this uh, extreme scarcity, very low inflation, a hard cap that uh, ensures that there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. These things that you can, you can rely on for the total supply, and as people speculate on it, whether just for the penny stock angle or they're actually using it for method of exchange, it, it can be a strong store of value there and, and gain value there. But ultimately, it doesn't have inherent value. That value comes from its ability to act as a method of exchange, its ability to act as a, a store of value that can't be inflated away by a nation state, those kinds of things. But it's definitely not an area of expertise for me. I, I don't really focus on the the value aspects. I focus on the the use cases of the tool itself. So like I, I try not to focus on price as much, but focus on like what do these tools enable? What what freedom do these tools give us that we would not have without them? What aspects of, of life can be improved when we have a money that's detached from the state, that's censorship resistant, that's privacy preserving. And so that's more my focus. But uh, ultimately with money, the value comes from knowing that you can spend it freely, from knowing that you can store value in it and from knowing that it, that it will be acceptable. And for many cryptocurrencies, you can't spend it anywhere. You can't mm. do anything with it. And I think those cryptocurrencies are ultimately just speculative assets. Um, but for the ones that you can use that do have a real use case, I think there's a lot to be said and that value being brought by community consensus and the ability to, to use it as a, a tool. All right. So, you know, governments are obviously, you know, always, almost always scrambling to keep up with technology. You know, legislation moves way slower than technology, but, Cryptocurrency is a big thing, Bitcoin in particular, and you know, so governments are trying to deal with this. They're trying to regulate how it's bought and sold, as you've kind of talked about before. They're trying to collect taxes on it. You know, for people that have invested and made a lot of money in it, they want to get a, a slice of that pie. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, they they want it to be trackable by law enforcement. They're worried that that the cryptocurrencies are going to be used for illicit things, like you talked about. So, where do things stand? Like, <laughs> where where are we at on this front? And maybe where do you think things might go? Yeah, so I mean, I think the key things that we're seeing with governments and with the regulation right now is is they really want two things. They want to get their their cut of the the pie. They want to make sure that they get their taxes, and they want to be able to restrict the the non compliant uses of cryptocurrency. I don't think nation states right now are worrying about like Bitcoin replacing the dollar or anything like that. And and honestly, as someone who's deeply into cryptocurrency, I don't see this world where like Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world or. Mm. Anything like that. And I don't think governments are too worried about that right now, but but really just collecting taxes and and preventing non-compliant usage. And the main way that they're doing that right now is is like we talked about before, the the vast majority of the way people get into cryptocurrency or spend cryptocurrency is by moving in and out of fiat, moving in and out of, of dollars or whatever local mm-hmm. currency you have. And the easiest way to do that is these centralized exchanges that we also talked about. And so governments have realized that the way that they can crack down both on tax evasion and on non-compliant usage is to ensure that they have this nice tidy list of who owns how much cryptocurrency, when they bought it, where they got it from, where they withdrew it to, what they did with it uh, in between. 
And if they have this nice tidy list, they can obviously follow up with people on taxes. Um, they can track people down if they have like your Bitcoin addresses tied to your ID and you, you do something that they deem non-compliant, whether that's something that's like buying drugs in a darknet market or that's something as, as simple as being in an authoritarian regime and, and donating to the wrong political party. They can use that list of who you are, where you live, and how much Bitcoin you own and what you've done with it to, to track you down and, and at least put fear into people who want to use these things for non-compliant use cases. And again, non-compliance can oftentimes be for good use cases. Mm. Uh, and obviously that depends on your stay and it depends on what you're looking at. But, but um, a lot of these things are not just buying drugs. They're, they're very important things like funding political dissidents, like fleeing countries of oppression mm. and trying to get across the border with this value. And, and so they realize that if they can get people at the on and off ramps, these centralized exchanges that collect ID, they can ultimately control the vast majority of people and the vast majority of, of the way that these things are used and, and make sure that they, they get their taxes and they, they prevent these people from doing these non-compliant things. So most of their pressure has been on, on that angle because it's an easy one for them to enforce. They generally don't even have to make laws and pass legislation to do these things. They're generally enforced by these uh, international bodies like FATF and FATFA, FATFA, who basically can create this regulation and they, they create these guidelines that are enforced by banks and held over the heads of cryptocurrency yeah. exchanges and others. And they're, they're not even things that get passed into law by people we're voting yeah. for, but they're things that are just created by these international bodies and, and then can be leveraged against cryptocurrency exchanges and cryptocurrency users and, and leveraged against them as, as this shady regulation that doesn't really have a basis in in codified law um so there's there's a lot more we can get into there but i think those are the keys of where they focus their regulation because those are the the easiest ways to shut that down and and ultimately for those people who want to use things like bitcoin or monero for freedom in order to get around that we need to build what are called circular economies these these ways that we can earn bitcoin and monero mm. ways we can save money in bitcoin and monero and ways we can spend them directly without yeah. having to go back and forth from dollars through exchanges and having to go through that hassle, but actually using them both as stores of value and methods of, methods of exchange directly um, and really getting the, the biggest benefit possible from them. All right, last question before we go, and that is, so let, let's say I've listened to all this today and I decided, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger. I'm going to, I'm going to, get out there and I'm going to get into the cryptocurrency market. I'm going to let, let's 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 set investing aside because there's there's ways to invest and you can I mean, you can go buy it through PayPal right now if you wanted to you just buy some Bitcoin. But if I really wanted to get some Bitcoin or Monero and I wanted to get it so that I wanted to participate in this new economy where I want to spend them as Bitcoin and spend them as Monero and and I want to store them somehow safely. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you recommend? Like what, like let's specifically walk through some, some tools or apps or, or exchanges, or what would you recommend somebody go do if they wanted to dabble in this right now? Yeah. So I think the main two pieces are how do you acquire it? And then how do you actually custody it? How do you actually hold it and use it mm -hmm. yourself? So acquiring it, like we talked about quite a bit throughout this, I think it's important that people understand the risks inherent in using these centralized exchanges that require this KYC, this know your customer information, that's your ID, your your passport, a photo of you, all of this, this stuff for all of the risks that we've mentioned before. I, I won't rehash that here, but generally I would, I would recommend avoiding the, those exchanges like Coinbase, like Kraken, um, and trying to get your cryptocurrency somewhere else so that you you don't put your personal data at risk and you don't put the, the evidence of you owning cryptocurrency both in the hands of these exchanges and ultimately 
quite possibly in the hands of, of hackers. Um, mm. So it's important to do that. And so the other best ways to acquire things like Bitcoin and Monero are this, these, these peer-to-peer approaches. And I talked about it a little bit earlier, but there are some specific ways to do that. Uh, one of the easiest ones can be cryptocurrency ATMs. There's actually mm. quite a few cryptocurrency ATMs throughout the U.S., I'll send you a link that you can include yeah. that lets you look up where these ATMs are around you, what cryptocurrencies they support, et cetera. But usually you can acquire anywhere from like $300 to $1,000 without providing ID or anything like hmm. that when you use these. So that can be a really easy way to just go to a gas station or something, um, use one of these ATMs, deposit cash, get cryptocurrency, and just use it as you you want after that. Past that, there are, there are some exchanges online that are are centralized but are peer-to-peer. They just basically facilitate people trading back and forth. Mm. The the one that I like to use the most is called Local Monero. The website's just localmonero.co. And you can essentially just go on there. People have posted offers. You can post an offer to mm. buy or sell Monero um, either for other cryptocurrencies or for dollars or other, other local currencies. And that's a, a really nice way to do it directly with people. Again, for the most part, you can avoid giving ID and that kind of thing and having this proof that you own cryptocurrency, which can be very, very detrimental long term. There are also some different approaches like for Bitcoin. There's something called an, an Azteco voucher. It's azte.co. And there are merchants that will essentially sell these, again, for cash, no idea required. Um, you can just go in, buy a voucher, and then you essentially redeem it to get the, the Bitcoin hmm. that it's worth. Um, and those are, some, those are some really powerful ways to do so. There are more, um, and I can give you some, some links, like I said, that yeah. will help direct people. But that's generally the way I recommend people buy it. And I know it seems very daunting at first. Like It's a lot easier to go on Coinbase and just slap in your credit card and, and yeah. get what you want. But that the KYC risks obviously are there, and the actual process of providing all the KYC info is a nightmare. <laughs> so I, I do definitely recommend these these kind of peer to peer approaches or these these ID free approaches like mm. cryptocurrency ATMs. As far as actually taking custody of the cryptocurrency and using it, that's obviously the biggest separation between just an investment and something you can actually yeah. use as a currency. And the most important thing is, no matter how you acquire your Bitcoin, your Monero, whatever, make sure that you keep the seed phrase that you get safe. So with any of these, like Bitcoin and Monero, you'll, you'll have a, a 12 or 24 word seed phrase is what it's called. And it's just a list of words. And that list of words will cryptographically be a, a private key, public key, um, and other keys as well, but will provide you that way to hold and transfer those funds as you see fit. And that's all you need to recover your Bitcoin or Monero, no matter what happens. Because there's a public ledger, right? I mean, it, you don't have to. It's not like you have to somehow maintain nope. that information on your hard drive somewhere. And if that hard drive dies, you're dead. Because it's all in the public ledger, right? So as long as you know how to access that public ledger, you've got access to your funds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you have that seed phrase, you can always just pull up a new wallet, enter that seed phrase, restore, and then that wallet, depending on what cryptocurrency it is, will will just search the blockchain, find all the transactions that are yours, and let you go on using it as normal. It's one of the the beautiful things of using a decentralized ledger is you don't have to keep all of that data locally to be able to do that. All right, man. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Seth. That was extremely informative. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's a lot to cover in an hour. And like I said, I don't get to talk through kind of the, the basics very often. So it was, a, it was good, a good refresher for me to be able to talk through this stuff. And I'm just going to kind of wrap my head around it, hopefully helpful for beginners and people who are new to it. Um, but definitely a, an interesting thing. And it is it's a rabbit hole. So if you want to learn more, there's always more to learn, but hopefully a good intro.
Well, I know that was kind of mind-blowing. I know we talked about a lot of heavy-duty concepts there. But I hope you came away understanding, at least at a very basic level, what this whole cryptocurrency thing is all about, in particular Bitcoin, and realize that there are many, many different types of cryptocurrency out there. It's just a, it's an interesting design that uh, Satoshi refined and brought to us in, in Bitcoin that has been copied multiple different times in multiple different ways. You may have heard of like Dogecoin. That's another one. We talked a little bit about Ethereum today. There are, there are many, many, many ones out there, but they all kind of work in the same way. And that is what we discussed today. Now, Seth mentioned something that I'd never heard of before called the Byzantine generals problem. And I am not going to try to explain that here. We don't have the time, uh, but I did put a link to the Wikipedia page for that in the show notes. If you are interested. Actually, Seth and I talked about a lot more stuff. It was a really long interview, and I hate cutting that stuff out, but I have pledged to try to keep this podcast to about an hour, and so I, I just had to cut some stuff out. So some of that is going to be in the bonus content for my patrons. We talk about cryptocurrency as an investment. We talk about why it's inflation-proof. We talk about what a fork is, a fork in the cryptocurrency, which is coming up soon with Monero. Actually, apparently they're doing one in July. And we also talk about what an NFT is a non-fungible token. And maybe I'll revisit that at some point on this show myself, because I know that's been in the news a lot too. But you have one week left to get your Dragon Challenge coin. Uh, my new patron promotion is going to be ending next Tuesday. And if you sign up at the right level, you'll get one or maybe even two of my coins. Now, I only minted 100 of these babies. There's, there's only 100 of these on the planet. I'm uh, keeping a handful of those for myself. And I've given away over half of them now. The copper ones in particular are, are dwindling in quantity. So if you want to get one of these, it's time to hop on it. Uh, go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. If you go to my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll see an article about it there. If you search for challenge coins, you'll see what they look like. You'll even get a little video about how the whole spinning thing works where you can use the challenge coin to roll random numbers and use my website, d20key.com, to generate a secure passphrase. So they, they're not just pretty, they are functional. I also just created some new stickers uh, with my logo, and I'm giving those out with the coin as well. Uh, but there's way more to it than that. Check out the patron benefits. There's some really great patron benefits. Uh, you can talk to me on Discord. You get bonus podcast content like I just discussed. I've actually got a book club. We're doing a privacy and security book club if you really want to get geeky. And, and even more. So anyway, check it out at patreon.com. You'll get the whole full deal there. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. I got a new show for you again next week. Lots of great interviews in the pipeline. So if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that now. And while you're there, I would love to get a nice five-star review for the podcast. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>